So we hear a lot of stories on popular media of Christians, famous Christians, Christians, musicians, and leaders, and pastors walking away from the faith, deconverting or destructing their faith. And so, Dr. Marriott, I'm curious, is this uh, seem like a bigger issue than it really is? Is it just some loud, outspoken people leaving, or is this really a bigger problem within the Christian church of people walking away from their faith? Uh, it's a huge problem, and um, there are a lot more people doing it than those who make the big splash, who make the big announcements on uh, on uh, the internet or or wherever. Uh, the Pew Research Institute in 2009, 2009 said that five to six that, that people are leaving the religion at five to six times the historic rate in 2015. Uh, Pew also said that for every one person who converts to Christianity, four leave. For every one that converts to Christianity, four are leaving. And in 2019, the General Social Survey said that 23% of Americans identify as nuns and 25%, give or take, identify as evangelical. And 78% of those nuns used to be folks who were religious. And so this is this is a, a, a big problem. Um, that that uh, people are leaving the faith in bigger numbers and at uh, greater rates than ever before. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, we are discussing your book, The Anatomy of Deconversion. I want to kind of jump off really quick one more with one kind of maybe clarification is that I know you've gotten some pushback on this word deconversion, that once you convert, you can't deconvert. Uh, and so maybe kind of clarify some definition before anyone kind of jumps to conclusions on what exactly we're talking here. What do you what, what is this conversation that we're going to have today about Christians deconverting or leaving the faith? Yeah, thank you for, for that opportunity, because it really is an important question to, to discuss. So when I use the word deconvert, I'm uh, using it to mean that there are people who once identified as Christians. They had a conversion experience. They went to church. They were involved. They had a high view of the Bible. They were trusting in Jesus for their salvation. And then they came to a point in their life where they said, I don't believe any of this anymore. And they uh, withdrew from their church and they don't believe in either God anymore or they certainly don't believe that Christianity is true. Now, some people say, look, you can't deconvert because you can't lose your salvation. People who um, are making these claims that they were once Christians and they aren't anymore, they were just never saved to begin with. Right. Now, that might be the case. And, um, and, and there is certainly a theological argument to be made that that is the case, right? You have the idea that if, if people are born again, that they're born again of the Spirit of God and that they will persevere, that they will endure. And if they've been saved at one point in their life, then they're saved for eternity. And then there are other folks who are going to say, no, not necessarily the case. Um, you can choose to apostatize, which would be to renounce your faith and walk away. So let me be real clear. I'm not taking a position on whether or not people were saved right. or whether they weren't saved. I am saying, though, that there are people who once identified as Christians and they point to certain factors that they experienced in their life that pushed them away from the faith. Now, if they were never Christians and they left, then that just revealed something. Um, and what it revealed was that uh, they were in the church, but they were never in the family of God. But I do want to point out that the very same issues that drive people out of the faith are also the very same ones that people who never apostatize, who never walk away from the faith, they, are, they experience those same issues and questions and problems, and they come to the precipice of apostasy, but they, but they don't necessarily leave. So if you're listening today and you're someone who says, look, you can't lose your faith, so why is this important? I would say it's important because we want to do everything that we can faithfully 
right. to remove hurdles and stumbling blocks that um, cause people to have a crisis of faith. Even if they won't leave the faith, we don't want them to head down that road even to begin with. Yeah. And I think that's good. And you lay that out pretty quickly in the book of you're talking about people who say, look, I was a Christian. I was a member of an evangelical or fundamentalist church. I no longer accept the Christian statements to be true. And I now identify as an unbeliever. So what exactly we mean theologically, whether Calvinism or Arminianism, that whole theological debate aside, they claim to be a Christian and they claim now not to be. And that's what we're going to be talking about. So if this is a conversation that sounds interesting to you, stay tuned. We're talking about the anatomy of deconversion, keys to a lifelong faith in, cult, in a culture abandoning Christianity. My guest, Dr. John Marriott, he is the director of the Biola University Center for Intercultural Studies. Uh, he also teaches philosophy and intercultural studies in, in those departments at Biola in the Department of Christian Ministry and Leadership at Talbot School of Theology. Um, and so, Dr. Marriott, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, Ryan, it's, it's good to be here. It's always good to see you again. We're yeah, either going to talk about, we're either talking about theology or we're talking about hockey, one of the other. Oh, yeah. So. And man, with both of our hockey teams in the playoffs right now, uh, it's a fun conversation. And one of our mutual friends, well, his team, uh, well, let's just say last place. And so he doesn't like joining those conversations. And so it's fun having someone to talk to, uh, hockey with. <laughs> I completely understand. I won't name that person by name. But anyways, uh, if this is another conversation, if this is something that you enjoy, you might enjoy other conversations as well. So you can always subscribe, check out the channel and see what is coming up in the future, as well as many other interviews that we've done really with the goal of helping you know what Christians believe, defend it, and then live it out faithfully. And so uh, this is what we're kind of looking at is what do Christians believe and what's causing them to walk away from those beliefs. And so... Uh, John, I, I'm curious, kind of as we jump back in, so we talked about this being a big problem of, of people walking away from the faith, and but we, we see it kind of maybe going by different names. And so I don't know if you could maybe clarify on a few things. Like here in your book, you talk about the anatomy of deconversion. Uh, there's also a lot of people talking about deconstructing their faith. And now I'm hearing again more recently of people using the term they're reclaiming their faith. So are these different things? Or are they all the same thing going by different names? Kind of what's going on here and what exactly are we addressing today? Yeah, I, I think that there are three different phenomenon, but they are very related. So de deconverting would be when, when someone says, I'm undoing my complete conversion. I, I once identify as a Christian, now I renounce all of that, and, and um, I've left the Christian community. Uh, folks who are in the process of deconstructing are those people who um, may end up deconverting, but not necessarily so. Um, deconstruction is is a you know philosophically loaded term that means... Right. Uh, something different in philosophy, technically speaking, than, than the way it gets applied in this conversation. But what it essentially means is that there are people who have been handed uh, an entire raft of beliefs and told that this is what it means to be a Christian. And it means not only just what they're what they believe, but also how you're supposed to live and behave. And um, they're saying, I'm not so sure. I think that all of those things are essential or all of those things line up with, the, with what my understanding of God is and placing them all out on the table and looking at them. And so the deconstruction is like if you can imagine um, the, a house representing, you know, the, the, the faith and people are now sort of deconstructing, taking apart the roof, taking apart some of the walls, almost all the way down to the foundation and then saying, all right, so what is it that I really believe that the Bible actually teaches? And then the reclaiming part is when they start to rebuild their house of faith uh, based on uh, what they think the Bible uh, teaches or their their understanding of God or uh, maybe a different theology that they were unaware of in the past. So, uh, yeah, because I think that's something you hear of maybe more often. And so I'm curious, like, in what sense is deconstructing uh, can be negative? Because we often hear of it in a negative sense. And in what sense maybe is it could it be a good thing of deconstructing and reclaiming the faith? 
Yeah, that's a great distinction to make because it's not all bad. Uh, it, you know, it also goes by the name or it used to kind of go by the name. You Sometimes you'll hear people in the, re the reformed communities talk about how we always need to be reforming or always reforming, mm -hmm. which means always going back to the text and saying, do we have it right? Do we understand clearly what's being said? And I think that it's something that's healthy for people to do because if they're doing it from um, maybe the, the right starting point and if they're doing it with the right motivations, then uh, I think that it can help people develop a faith that is really their own, one that they can have deeper convictions about because they've thought it through and they've asked the questions, is this something that I think that the Bible's really right. teaching? And and so I think deconstruction is not necessarily a, a bad thing, but I do tend to believe that what pushes people down the, the road to deconstruction often is a, a, a real sort of dissatisfaction with uh, the Christianity that they've inherited, which they, they might very well be um, right to be dissatisfied with. Um, but um, it, it can also be done with without a uh, without an end goal in mind or a purpose in mind. Instead of trying to find better answers, it could just be to raise more questions. Therefore, mm. um, I don't think that deconstructing is always bad, um, I, uh, but I don't think that it's always a good thing either. Yeah. So would you put it in the same category? Like, but is for deconversion, it seems like that's pretty much just bad to deconvert. There's not really a good part of the deconversion. Like there might be a good aspect of deconstructing. Yes. Unless the only, this, the only time I think that would be healthy is let's say I was never really a believer to begin with, because I had believed such a warped understanding of the gospel hmm. that I rejected it. And I deconverted and said, I'm not, I'm not buying into this anymore. Um, then I ended up coming across the, the true gospel and someone shares what it really means to be a Christian and the liberty that comes and the freedom that comes with that. And then I adopt that. C.S. Lewis says, you know, if, if a person's made a mistake, then uh, the most progressive thing they can do is turn around and go back and get on the right road going in the right direction. And, and I think that is possible when someone uh, maybe has such a, a bad understanding of Christianity that they've adopted, then deconverting actually could be could be helpful for them. Yeah. Okay. That is helpful. Now, um, in this book, you you have the, again, the anatomy of deconversion, where you really spend the vast majority of the book sharing a lot of stories that we're going to kind of get to in some of the details that we get to looking at what causes uh, deconversion, uh, what happens during that process, how it affects people in different ways. And so um, I'm curious to kind of hear from you specifically of, of like, what is the purpose of writing this? Why spend in a whole book just saying, here's what happens to people rather than um, spending a majority of the book of how to help. Or, I don't know of uh, why focus on so much on here's why this is happening and here's what happens. Right. Good question. Well, I think unless you really understand the source of the, of the problem or the issue, then um, you will probably not be able to respond appropriately or effectively to it. And I also think that we're not just dealing with with abstract doctrine. We're, we're talking about real people and knowing where they've come from, knowing uh, some of the reasons that they offer, understanding the context that they have deconverted out of. Those, I think, can really help us frame a proper response. And, and sometimes the response might be simply just to uh, love them well, to pray with them, to listen to them. Other times it might be to engage in, in dialogue with them. So, for example, 
if someone is a, a, a reject, and by that I don't mean uh, that in a pejorative or negative way, I just mean that uh, there are, when people lose their faith, it, it seems as though they either are rejectors or they're losers, right? Someone who rejects the faith is someone who has been really offended by it and says, this is terrible. Like God is doing all of this stuff in the Old Testament and he's sending people to hell and I can't believe this. I, I'm offended by this uh, and I'm rejecting it. Uh, someone who I, I would identify as a loser, uh, and again, it's not a pejorative sense, it's that they've lost their faith, not because they've come across anything that has so offended them that they've reject it, rejected it, but that over time, they realize that they just don't believe this anymore in the same way that they don't believe in Santa Claus anymore. It becomes almost impossible for them to maintain a belief, and yeah. so they've lost it. Well, if you don't know... Um, where they're coming from and how they've gotten to this point in the process that they've gone through, then if you're going to try and say anything that will be helpful, then um, you are going to be uh, severely disadvantaged in being able to do that. Therefore, if we really want to love people and, and love folks who have wrestled with and have left the faith, then we need to do our best to, to listen and understand them. Yeah. And I, I think that's such a huge point right there is that I think some people can so quickly kind of sit on the outside and like, oh, look at all the things that are wrong with this person. Look at, you know, and it's much more of like a, at a distance versus hopefully the goal in our conversation is we're going over all the effects. We're really looking at, as you have here, the anatomy of deconversion, of decon deconversion. I keep always saying deconstruction every time, <laughs> but uh, a deconversion, not for the purpose of like pointing out, oh, here's all their faults. Here's where all you went wrong. See, you know, but it's really saying as a doctor, like I have to understand the problem and exactly everything that's going on with you so that I can love you in my attempt to, to meet you where you're at. Uh, and that is the approach that we want to take today, not is sit back from a distance and point out all the person's faults and problems. Um, so going along with that, um, as we look here, and I just lost my train of thought. I thought I had another question. Oh, yes, here it is. Um, how is what you have here different, I guess, than, than, than research other places? Because there's a lot of Pew studies of here's how many people are walking away from the faith. What is what you're presenting here in this book different than simply just grabbing research that people could find anywhere else online? I think that the difference uh, here is, is that what I've done is, uh, you know, I've interviewed a lot of folks personally, and um, I've, I've interviewed nearly 30 people who once identified as Christians and, and no longer do, and then uh, read uh, over 300 deconversion narratives of people who have wow. posted them online, and tried to figure out what it is that uh, has been the catalyst that has sent them down this road, the context that they've come out of, the process that they've gone through, identifying if there is a uh, point of almost no return, humanly speaking, in that process, and then the impact that it's had in, in their life. And what I'm trying to do is give uh, almost like the 30,000-foot uh, view of the process of deconversion from the perspective of someone who has left the faith. And what you get often from within the, the Christian world, and this is not a criticism at all, it's just the, the way that it is, is an analysis from outside but not often an, um, an insight from within the world of the people who have, have left the faith. And my desire is, is to help people who are within the church to understand, hey, this is what it looks like. This is what the experience is in the hopes that we can hopefully avoid setting people up for this kind of a crisis. And then people who are already heading down that road, maybe there are some things we can do that will help avert them from uh, reaching that final destination. 
Yeah. Okay. So in order to kind of get to where we're going to end up in the kind of helping avoid this and kind of get people on a different road, understanding, okay, why does this deconversion take place? And there's a lot of reasons. Uh, there's a lot of reasons that we could go over. So I think it's fair to say we're not covering every single reason. We're not saying that uh, what we present here is your story. If this is something going on with you, it's like whenever I, I'll make a short video and say, here's three possible reasons why someone rejects Christianity. And I always get the comment, that's not me. And it's like, well, this, this isn't covering everybody, right? Um, but what would you kind of say are maybe the the top reasons of, of all these narratives that you've read, the, the things to look out for maybe the most, what is causing someone to experience what they're going through? You know, there, there's two important uh, spheres, I think, that need to be addressed. And and in this book, I only address one, but the the, the other is, the, the and we're going to talk, I'll talk about it in a minute. The other one, though, is, is the sort of the unconscious sphere that is always playing a role in why people convert to Christianity and why people leave Christianity. We always are telling our stories after the fact, right? So when I tell you my testimony and I say, here's why I became a Christian, it's always interpreting the facts after they've already happened in light of my new relationship with hmm. Jesus. Likewise, when people give their narrative about how they've left the faith, it's always um, in light of, of, of their new identity as an unbeliever. And we're only able to identify so many things that are playing a role in why we do what we do and why we believe what we believe. But I am convinced that there's a lot going on off the radar, under the hood, so to speak, that plays a huge role in why A, I became a Christian and B, why some people leave the faith. And, and, and I say that because it's really... Um, it's really easy to focus in on the conscious reasons that people give for their loss of faith, right? Mm. And and then we try and address all of those when we also need to be paying attention to and thinking about some of the things that are happening um, on an emotional level, on a cultural level, on a values level, um, on relational levels that, that um, may be just as significant as the intellectual factors. But let's talk about those for just a minute. The number one reason why people end up walking away from their faith, at least that they that, that, that they say, is that because it's just not true. They've come to a conclusion that it's not true. And when you ask why, it's one of two reasons. One, because it's got so many intellectual problems that it can't possibly be true. Bible contradictions, scientific contradictions, not enough evidence to support it. Or just in general, it's it's just a, a ludicrous, irrational story, if you stop and think about it long enough, that someone in the 21st century would believe that. The other is an emotional experience or an experiential component that has also caused them to believe that it's not true. And that could be something like being a, a hurt by someone within the church or being really let down or finding that everyone that they've known as a Christian is a big hypocrite or being really let down by God when they have expectations that he doesn't meet. And... Uh, one person I was it just comes to mind is uh, a friend of, of mine, uh, actually, who left the faith. That's how I met her. And then she returned to the faith uh, not long ago, said that uh, what really pushed her away was how much she was hurt by Christians. And, and she said, if this is really what Christianity produces, then I don't want to have anything to do with this because it just produces such garbage people. Mm. And, and, and it wasn't emotional in a sense. It was a veracity issue. Like she said, it can't be true if this is what it's producing. So first of all, people who leave the faith do so not primarily because they want to go out and sin. At least that's not what they say. Uh, it's not because they are um, living in, in some kind of sinful uh, 
practice at, at the moment, even though they could be. Right. Uh, but as far as they're concerned, it's that they've realized it's not true. And I yeah. take them at their word from that and try and understand uh, exactly why that's the case. Well, I think that's so important is, is to kind of take someone at their word. I think sometimes we feel like we can read between lines and maybe there's times where we can and see something that maybe and helps expose. And other times I think we, we assume that there's more there that's not really there. Now, I've flat out had a student tell me if I became a Christian, I have to stop doing the things I want to do. And, and, and it was, it was sinful stuff. And it was like flat out, like it is because I want to live in sin and I don't want to be held morally accountable. Now, if I ever say that someone's like, well, that's not all atheists. It's like, of course not. Right. We're not applying this to everybody. Um, but there are definitely reasons that can be true of different people when it comes to truth. And, you know, it, 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 you were, you were just reminding me, I think it was your first book, a recipe for disaster, where you talked about the comparison of like, kind of on a basic level of like, if you just have like a Sunday school education where you're some random parent tells you that there's a magical snake that he, and you ate a fruit and everything bad happened. Then you go off to college and you have a professor who has PhDs and academic resources and citations tell, teaching you something different, like at the base level, like who are you going to believe? Right. And it kind of becomes difficult in that sense. Oh, it, it, sense. it does. Oh, oh, it does. Uh, you know, the, the Christian narrative, the big story of the, of the Bible is, uh, in some ways, you know, we have to choose. We, I, I think many of us have to choose to live within it and put one foot in front of the other and say, I'm going to take up my role in the story today and I'm going to act according to the script, which I believe is true. But yet I also recognize doesn't really fit well within the world that I'm that I'm living in. Right. We're sending uh, rovers to Mars. Uh, Elon Musk is moving there any day now. And um, and and we've mapped the human genome and yet the story that we hold to and believe sounds not all that different and then and it has has parts of has parts of that story that sound very similar to other mythical ancient stories that we say we don't we don't believe and we don't hold to so you do grow up in the church at times with a very um unsophisticated view of Adam, the Adam and Eve creation story. And so what happens is uh, you go off to university and as you develop your math skills, by the time you've gone from kindergarten all the way up to your final year at university, you know so much math at such a high complex understand, understanding that you could, if you had the, if you had the materials, you could launch a rocket into space. And yet <laughs> your understanding of the Genesis story probably remains at a Sunday school level and trying to live in both of those worlds is really challenging. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So there's definitely kind of the the intellectual, you know, cognitive problems that you have uh, that you address, right? And and we're kind of talking about here of you know problems within the Bible, and we address some of those of you know the violence in the Old Testament, um, evolution being one, and and what we're talking about here is scientific advances, and then also the influence of atheists, that YouTube atheist channels. I mean, I I get quite a few messages through social media, through Instagram or whatever. Uh, of say, people saying, hey, I just watched this video by Cosmic Skeptic, or I just watched this video by, you know, so-and-so on YouTube. Oh, man, it seemed pretty convincing, right? And so there's just a, we live in a different world. I'm curious if you have any more that you can speak into that of just the, how the world has changed because of access to information and the influence of people that hold different worldviews, rather than, I know I've talked to my dad, where it's like, man, back in the 1950s, he was a kid growing up, like, you're in your church and your school and everyone is your neighborhood and everyone's friends and everyone goes to the same school and everyone goes to the same church. And there's just not the same exposure that we deal with today. Yeah. Oh, uh, for sure. You know, when I was, when I was growing up in the eighties um, and very early nineties, I could ride my bike 
to a Christian bookstore that was that close to my home and uh, go in and there were, there's an entire shelf section dedicated to uh, apologetic kind of material. I could turn on my Christian radio and I would be able to hear radio stations that uh, or radio programs on the Christian radio station that were dedicated to uh, some kind of apologetic sort of ministry. There were uh, apologetic ministries that I, that I knew of that I could find out and get information from. I also went to church on Sunday and there were people there who were well learned and I could ask them questions and they could encourage me and build me up in my faith. The, uh, the, you know, atheism per, you know, is very small in numbers. In fact, I mean, it is growing. There's clearly no doubt about that, but, but the number of people who identify as atheists in the United States is, is still pretty small, relatively speaking. And therefore it's difficult for them, I think, to gain traction and get a message out because you don't have enough people to start a publishing house and you don't have enough people to start radio programs and television programs, etc. Uh, I can think of just a couple uh, atheist publishing houses that I was even aware of growing up. But the internet has allowed a thousand atheist apologists to bloom and to network and to connect online. And that information has been, has uh, really, really impacted a lot, a lot, a lot of people. Because the, I think sometimes the mistake is made that if I present an argument and then you offer a response, then you have refuted my argument. And and, and maybe th that's it. That's the end of the discussion, right? So I get up and give a talk on the resurrection and, and then you uh, put out a blog on it and someone reads it and says, oh, you know, Ryan really destroyed all John's arguments about the resurrection. The resurrection must not be a very strong argument. And, right. and then they, that's it. That's the, as far as the research goes. And we don't realize that, no, there's, this very much, there's very much a lively debate and dialogue going back and forth online. So I think that this is a play, playing a huge role in why people are really wrestling and struggling with faith because they're getting exposed to information that they had never been exposed to before. Yeah. So I'm curious, kind of as your perspective as a father, uh, you know, with, with two children, um, what would you say to parents in the exposure for their children of, of what should they expose them to, to how, you know, because we're kind of getting into the application of how to grow a, a faith. And part of that is exposure. You know, we don't keep them completely in the dark, but what would be kind of uh, your advice to parents of trying to figure out how do you properly allow your kids to be exposed to counter arguments online? Yeah, I think I think about this a lot, uh, and I think about it more than I have answers for it. I um, have two kids. One's twelve, and the other one is ten. My son is twelve. He's very analytic. He asks me lots of questions. He um, is not a not a skeptic by any means, but he is very inquisitive. And for him, I think it's probably really important for me to guide him through and to expose him to a lot of this information and doing it in, in a way that um, hopefully will in a healthy way, inoculate him from becoming infected by it at some point down the road. And we're all getting vaccinated uh, these days because we know that getting a little bit of the, of the virus uh, in, in a kind of a way uh, protects us from, from getting it in a more significant harmful way later. In the case of my son, we talk about things like we watched The Chosen the other night and he wanted to know, well, wait a minute, how come John says that Jesus's first miracle is at the wedding in Cana? But when you watch The Chosen, Jesus does a miracle for Peter, fills up his boat with fish. And then after that, they go to 
the wedding at Cana. So mm-hmm. which miracle came first? And um, and so we talk about that. And I talked to him about the composition of the New Testament in a 12-year-old kind of a way. Right. Right. So little bits here, little bits there, being able to talk about what other people believe, being able to expose them to other ideas, I think is is helpful. And I don't have advice for people in general because everyone is so different and children are also different. My daughter, who is not analytic, but is very intuitive, uh, does not wrestle with the same kind of questions my son wrestles with. So for her, I don't bring those questions up because I don't want to plant them in, in her head when she's probably not going to be, they're not going to throw her a curveball later on when she hears them anyway. And so I think it takes some discernment and, um, and everyone's a little bit different on that. Yeah. And I think that's similar to, you know, advice that I often hear that's given with kids is, you know, don't necessarily be planting ideas in their head that they're not even thinking about. You don't have to go around and be like, Hey, so have you thought about that? You know, that kind of thing. But as they ask questions, as they, as they watch movies, asking them questions and, and, and figuring out ways of, of, of responding to what they're kind of thinking about and dealing with and being open to that. And I love it. You know, I was on a hike a couple months ago with, in my, what is she about? Oh man. Sorry if you're watching this family. Um, about nine, I think. Nine, 10, 11 years old, somewhere there. No, she'd be younger. Yeah, about 10. And um, uh, asking questions. She's reading through, uh, it was, uh, I think, um, uh, Joshua. And she's reading through the book of Joshua. And it's like, I have questions about the book of Joshua. And it's like, all right, what do you, what do you want to know? You know, and I'm not been like, so what about the killing of the Canaanites? Have you got that? But, you know, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, yeah, responding where they're, I, I think that is so good. Now, um, Kind of, if we can get to maybe some of the application here, kind of early on as we talk about those with intellectual objections, what would you say if you're kind of speaking to those who um, are watching this because maybe they are struggling intellectually to understand things about Christianity? What what would you kind of advice would you have to to give to them? Well, if we were ever to meet in person or talk, I would really just want to listen and uh, really hear what some of the challenges that you have are because. Um, you know, they, they, they might be ones that I have shared or that I have thought of as well. I, I write on this and I think about this, not because faith is something that has always came easy to me or is always something that I feel incredibly uh, a high degree of confidence in. It's because I, I understand how living in the 21st century uh, can make believing in Jesus difficult and, um, and so I would try and listen and find points of, of, of real resonance, right? And, and, and say, yes, I, I hear what you're saying. And uh, it's okay to really think these things through and ask these questions. So that would be the first thing I would do. The second thing I would want to do is I would want to listen to what their assumptions are about issues like believe and faith. Because... In, in my experience, I've talked with a, a number of people who feel as though that that being a Christian means being a believer. And then, of course, the more you believe, the more certain you are, the, the more of a believer you are. And when they feel a sense of doubt or they're not certain that what they believe is true, they may feel as though, well, I'm, I guess I don't really believe this anymore because if I have doubts, I can't be believing. And what I would want to find out and, and hear and hopefully share is that that you can be a very faithful follower of Jesus. You can be a very faithful believer in him, regardless of where you feel uh, on the confidence scale. As long as you have enough reasons for a hope worth acting on, as long as you have enough, you're persuaded enough that the 
that the story of the gospel is true and that you don't find the counter arguments um, persuasive, then um, you can be a very faithful follower of Jesus by, by every day taking up your role in the story, by choosing to act and choosing to make Jesus Lord and how you live and how you talk and how you treat people. And I think that that is really a, 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 a good, healthy definition of what it means uh, to have faith. It's not someone who is devoid of questions right. or who never wrestles with some of the issues that, of course, um, come if you're a kind of a thinking person living uh, when we do. So that that's the first uh, two things that I would uh, probably want to uh, probably want to do. I think that's good. And hopefully that is a, a good, helpful framework for those who are uh, who we if we are uh, trying to uh, reach someone, if we're trying to talk to someone who in our life is going through deconversion using that similar kind of framework. Now, I'm I'm also kind of curious because consider, you know, I, I, I this isn't just an apologetics channel, right? I'm trying to focus on all Christian worldview ideas, not simply just apologetics, but uh, as an apologist, and I know you have your master's in apologetics. Um, I love what you kind of the, the I guess maybe if I call it the balance that you kind of have of how apologetics plays into this. So how would you, uh, can you kind of maybe speak into that of how apologetics plays a role in faith and in belief? Yeah, I, everybody, everyone needs reasons for what they believe, especially if those beliefs are really close to uh, the big issues of life, like the meaning of life, uh, your identity, your purpose, uh, moral issues, values. It, unless there is a ground, a solid ground that someone can stand on, then it makes it very challenging and hard to maintain those beliefs, which is why I think that it is really helpful to be able to offer reasons to people for why they can trust the Bible, not so that they can know with absolute certainty that the Bible is the word of God, or not so that they can demonstrate that Jesus really rose from the dead, because both of those things are impossible to do if you're trying to do it in such a way that it, it leads to absolute certainty. But what it can do is provide people with enough reasons for this hope that's worth acting on. An example I would give would be um, my son, again, uh, wants to get baptized. And, and he said, you know, but before I do that, I really want to think about a few things. I said, well, what do we want to talk about? He's like, well, you know, how do we really know that this is true? So we, we went through the process of, okay, what do you mean by no? And are you hoping that you'll be 100% certain and that you won't have any doubts? And I tried to clarify that what he should be looking for is that he should be looking for strongly persuaded that there's good reason to pledge his allegiance to Jesus. And um, we talked about that. And then, and then we said, okay, so what's the one thing then that we that um, we can look at that will separate Christianity from everything else. We talked about the resurrection. I said, would you like to find out the reasons that Christians believe that Jesus really rose from the dead? He said, yeah, that would really help me. And so we've been going through a really good video series and just watching it, not on a regular basis, very infrequently when I feel like he's got nothing going on and he might be interested. And then we just chat about it afterwards. And because of that, uh, he feels like, yeah, I think I'm getting to the place where I really want to be baptized because I think this is true. Hmm. Not just, I've just accepted it as true because, well, I've grown up in this house. So I think yeah. apologetics appropriately done, not that I'm always doing it appropriately, but um, is is really important for, for folks to have a, a faith that will endure. 
Yeah. John, I, John, I only had you on this as an interviewee because I thought you always do it appropriately. So now that you admit well, your faults, I don't <laughs> Well, I mean, I have, yes. I mean, I cheer for the Toronto Maple Leafs. So, so oh. that should be your first question. That should be your first clue that maybe my, my wisdom is uh, lacking in, uh, <laughs> in many areas. So well, not, we'll not see everybody what can. Not everybody can, you know, be as successful as a Colorado Avalanche can. Hey, my goodness. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, where's my finger? There it is. There's McKinnon right there. Had a hat trick last night. Three goals. Oh, wow. Four wow. points you overall. The, yeah, we are. You, you know, the joke that Maple Leaf fans always tell, right? Is that when, when, that when we die, we're going to get the Maple Leafs to uh, be uh, pallbearers at our funeral. So they can let us down one last one more, time. Yeah, one more yeah, time. There yeah. you go. So, yeah. hey, well, it's looking good for you. So uh, let's let's hope that joke does not play itself out. So um, now, obviously, a a response, right? If if someone is walking away for intellectual reasons, we we spent a while kind of discussing what that would look like. Uh, but you you also bring up emotional reasons, and in a lot of the interviews that you had where people expressed disappointments with fellow Christians. What does your response look like in, in coming alongside someone who is saying, look, I, I, I've had issues with the church. I've had issues with other Christians. Um, obviously you're not necessarily giving an argument for the resurrection. What does that look like? Right. Oh, a lot of listening, a lot of, uh, empathizing, probably a lot of, uh, agreeing that maybe they were really, really treated poorly. Uh, I think that the the temptation and maybe what is the 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 real uh, right answer to this to this issue is is not the most effective one to give because I, I would be tempted to say when someone says well I've been treated poorly and the church is full of hypocrites my natural tendency would be to say something like but what does that have to do with whether or not Jesus rose from the dead because I realize that there are people who have treated us poorly but that doesn't have any real impact on the on the truth of whether or not right. Jesus is who he claimed to be. But that doesn't seem like it's a very effective thing to do in in those in those moments, right? Um and and so one thing that I found that can be uh helpful is helping people maybe uh look at the expectations and the assumptions that they that they carry when it comes mm -hmm. to the church and when it comes to God. And a lot of people, myself included, have these deep expectations of God that he is going to do certain things or that he will never let certain things happen to me because I'm trying to follow him and, and serve him. Right. I mean, I have a friend who, who, who wisely risked a lot uh, financially for the kingdom of God, prayer, seeking counsel, an excellent venture that was going to serve lots and lots of, of people. Uh, and in the end, uh, he lost his house. And I said to him, how are you not upset at God about that? And he said, well, God never promised me that this was going to work. Hmm. And I said, yeah, but you did all this for him. And and this is what you get in return. And, you know, he said, well, I don't operate on the reciprocity principle with God. It's not I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Right. He doesn't He doesn't owe me anything. And if we think that God sort of owes us something or that he'll never let bad things happen to us, I say this gently, we haven't really paid close attention to the Bible. Um, and we, um, yeah, we, we, we need to take a better look at that because Jesus uh, tells the disciples multiple times that I'm telling you these things in advance so that your faith will not fail because hard things are going to come your way. Yeah. And I think that that 
that can be helpful trying to hear and listen to the expectations and the assumptions. And then when it's appropriate, maybe not in the moment, but when it's appropriate to um, try and help that person see that maybe some of the things that they believed, they didn't have a, a, a warrant for, for believing that God would do. I think that's so good. Now, one thing I think I, that I read, um, I know I read, but I was thinking about uh, that, that you have here is, and, and I think this really kind of, this made me stop and think, and that's what I'm trying to say here, is that you wrote here um, that the single greatest negative impact of deconversion was felt most acutely in the loss of relationships. And I just stopped for a second and I thought, you know, how should that shape me when talking with a friend, a loved one, or even a stranger who is in the process of deconverting, knowing that they are probably um, about to lose or at least negatively affect a lot of relationships in their lives. And you talk about relationships with parents and friends and church community and, and everything. And so I'm kind of curious if you could kind of speak into what is this kind of the loss of relationships that those who are deconverting go through and then maybe how that should shape us as I think almost having a heart of compassion. Like not everyone doing this is just out of like spite for God and hey, look at me, this is wonderful. Like there's a, and as you talk about in your book, there's like a, a time of seriously seeking few, seeking truth and trying to retain their faith because they don't, some of these people don't want to give it up. Some of these people really don't want to lose what has been so amazing in their life, but they finally just can't admit that truth anymore. And I think yeah. that knowledge makes us go, oh, it's not just a spiteful sort of thing. And maybe that shapes how we approach these people. So I want to speak a little bit into that. The most troubling, the most troubling thing I find as I read narratives and I talk with people is that is that there are there are numbers of people out there who prayed, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And I don't want to lose my faith. And they now identify as people who are no longer believers. And uh, they will say that they left their faith. They lost their faith in, in tears. Um, there are, they, they show me their journals and, and the prayers that they had written in there. Oh. And so when 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 the the I, I I take this to be kind of a maybe a knee jerk response and uh, a response that comes up maybe out of some insecurity when people say well you know all those people that you talk to well they were never saved anyway so you know they left that they they left because they were never of us because if they were of us they wouldn't have left and and that's you know they quote First John now I think there's something theological to be said about that and a conversation to be had I think it's very easy though to dismiss a lot of people. Hmm. by saying, yeah, they wanted to sin or they just uh, really showed what their true colors were and they never really were believers. When there is a significant, there is a significant phase that people go through, uh, and not all people, but, but some who go, that go through the, the, in the process of deconversion, where they are trying to retain their faith. They have come to a crisis. They have found something out about the Old Testament or about the New Testament uh, about the existence of God, and it has rocked them so badly that they are doing everything they can to do research and to investigate, but they also have been really trained well by our evangelical subculture that truth is of paramount importance and that you don't believe things because they make you feel good, but you believe things because they're the truth. And they pursue, at least to the best of their understanding, they're pursuing the truth. And they come to the place where they say, yeah, I, I, I don't believe this anymore. And I, I can't continue to, to live this way. And the res what results 
from that uh, often is uh, broken relationships, some of which have some you know broken marriages. Yeah. Uh, I, there are uh, one lady who I interviewed who her mother on her deathbed uh, said, you're not my daughter anymore because you don't believe in God and just turned. And that was the last words that she ever heard from her wow. mom. Uh, brothers and sisters uh, never speaking for years because of this. Yeah. People who have been involved in Christian ministry and then left all of a sudden uh, are out of job and are financially strapped, but they also have lost their entire community because uh, the longer you're a Christian, the less non-Christian friends you tend to have. Right. And now all of a sudden you can't maintain that community very well, regardless of how hard you try, because you don't share a, the same core set of beliefs and B the people who you left feel a sense of betrayal. And um, that wedge is often too hard to, to overcome. And, and, and so, yeah, therefore people who, who leave the faith, their biggest uh, and the most difficult impact that that has in their life um, is, is emotional and relational for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I just thought that was so huge. And as I read that, it's like, man, we, we have to recognize that when we are having theological conversations and trying to understand what is true, but recognizing the, the ways in which this personally affects people and, and, and wrecks some people and really has a huge impact on their life to, to be able to come alongside people. And, and recognize the pain in that moment. And we can do that when someone's like sick, right? It's like, you know, we don't just turn to theological like, well, you know, if you are sick, maybe God is, you know, it's like we recognize the need to listen and cry with people and, and when things are going terrible, but then trying to guide them and direct them back to to what is yes. is true. I think that's huge. Now, um, I think one one reason I hear a lot and you, you address it in the book is this idea that like, why are people sometimes better uh, happier, more free, more compassionate, more peaceful after deconverting. It seems like if we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, we should have more freedom, happiness, compassion, and peace as Christians. Why then, if Christianity is true, why are people experiencing these positive emotional impacts after leaving their faith? Yeah, the number one response that people offer when I say to them, so what's the, the impact been is that it has been liberating or that it has been freeing. They are more intellectually virtuous. They are more ethically virtuous. Now they um, are happier than they've ever been. And I think that there's a couple things that you can take away from that. One is that you know, these responses are not necessarily truth indicative. Uh, you know, they don't indicate where the, that they've discovered the truth. Because uh, they would also have said similar things when they became Christians, right? And they had an experience where they felt joy and happiness and, oh, I, I found God. And, and they've come to realize in their minds that, oh, I was mistaken back then. But you still felt happy back then and free back then, too. So now you're feeling positive and happy now as well. That doesn't mean that those experiences indicate that you found the truth necessarily. But it does mean something. And... It is striking to me that Jesus says two things that uh, on the surface m might seem contradictory, but uh, I don't think that they are. He he repeatedly warns us that that there will be difficulties for those who follow him, that there will be hardship, that there'll be persecution, that there will be uh, people who will not uh, like us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet at the same time, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it is easy, and my you know my burden is light, and you'll find rest for your souls. Mm -hmm. 
Now, Jesus is clear that if you sign up for his path, that it's not going to be easy, but in, in one sense, but in another sense, it's going to be life-giving and liberating and freeing. It makes me wonder then when people identify as deconverts and say that leaving Christianity has been the best thing for them because it has freed them up, what exactly have they left? Have they left the way of Jesus or have they left something that is masquerading as the way of Jesus and maybe is an overbearing kind of uh, Christendom or pseudo kind of Christianity or legalistic religion mingled in with Christian gospel truths. And I tend to think it's the latter of all of those because no one says, well, Christianity was hard and sometimes my friends made fun of me or I had to sacrifice uh, going out and getting drunk and give up my own rights and take out my cross and follow Jesus. That's why I don't believe it anymore. Um, no, they say I'm free now. Right. Well, what, what are you being set free from? And it's usually a very oppressive form of Christianity. Yeah. Now, obviously, that's true of, you know, we hear a lot of stories of people coming out of fundamentalist uh, churches where they are really focused on don't do this, don't do this, don't don't drink, don't dance, don't play cards, don't this. And then I think also uh, you hear sometimes I think what you talked about of this. Uh, oh, uh, um, I think in your other book, you describe it as like a house of cards uh, where, where all these secondary and tertiary doctrines become core doctrines where you have to be a young earth creationist. You have to be this. You have to be this. And you also have to accept this eschatology and premillennial, you know, all this kind of stuff. And we start to realize, hey, maybe this is not accurate. And then we throw out all of Christianity rather than recognizing there are Christians that line up on, on both of these. And so we have this long list of all these things that have to be a certain way. And it's really maybe a false view of Christianity that they're giving up rather than the true version of Christianity. At the same time, though, you have examples of people coming out of not fundamentalist churches. You have examples of people coming out of what looks more like a mainland, main or a more popular level evangelical church. Uh, would you say there's a similar experience there? Um, not to the degree that people who come out of these very stifling environments come from, not to the, to that degree. Um, but I do think that there probably is a sense of liberation that comes from, uh, feeling that now you're, 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 you're in the truth or that you now have the ability to create the world in a way and live in a way in which you totally want to, because even if you are coming out of a very well-balanced, healthy church and you're you're being taught the Bible in an appropriate way that is not burdensome and is not applying all kinds of extra legalistic standards to you. Th there are still things that go against our grain and step on our toes when it comes to what the Bible teaches and to not have to worry about any of those anymore. And to be able to just say, I can do what I want when I want, however I want and believe what I want. And I don't have to maybe look at other people through a particular lens, like they're lost or they're evil or they're reprobates. And I can just be free to accept everyone for who they are and how they identify. I do think that that can have a sense of a psychological sense of, of, of freedom, but um, not to the degree that it would be if it came, if you came from a much more stifling environment. Yeah, I think that's good. And just to address the quick comment that came in, not necessarily saying young earth creationism is not accurate, but that there are Christians that hold to old earth, there are Christians that hold to young earth. And I would think that both of those can be Christians. That is a secondary doctrine. That is not core Christian doctrine that if you somehow prove young earth creationism false, all of Christianity is 
falls apart and Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And no, you can hold to something different. That was the main point there. A uh, lot of other videos, if you're curious, uh, that you can go check out on uh, my views on the age of the earth. Um, now, kind of the, the, the other positive impacts that we see in people's lives that make people go, well, man, this sure seems like a good thing. As you talk about first, as we just mentioned, the emotional impacts uh, that are positive, but also the positive intellectual impacts. Now, you kind of address this uh, already, but you know, people see the positivity of the ethical improvements and the moral progress, uh, especially on things like abortion and, and sexual ethics. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious if you have something to kind of speak into this. Uh, again, there's a lot of other shows specifically on these topics, but of how, uh, why we see this as a positive intellectual progression rather than, I don't know, something different. How would you approach this? Yes. So I'm, I'm glad that you make the distinction and, and you identify that when we're talking about a positive development in their life, it's it's from their perspective, correct? Because Paul right. will actually say in Romans that when people give up the idea of God, they don't become freer, they become in bondage. And the right. bondage that they become, that they end up becoming um, trapped in is not a more virtuous intellectual life, but more of a futile mind or a futile mind. And they end up engaging in behavior that is shameful and dishonoring, right? So from their perspective, giving up God has liberated them and freed them intellectually and morally. But from a biblical point of view, their their uh, deconversion has not led them. Because if God is clearly, you know, if God's the author of the universe and he is the truth and he's revealed truth, then I, in fact, let's just say uh, for the sake of argument, that is the case, then living outside of that and, and in opposition to that clearly can't be more wise and clearly cannot be more moral if the source of morality is telling you not to do that. But um, when it comes to their experience, this is how they would feel. They would say, you know, before I had to hate LGBTQ people and I had to really um, say that women can't do what they want with their bodies. They can they have to do what I tell them to do. But now I don't have to, to do that. And that just feels much more tolerant and more moral and more fair. And this is all, in my opinion, just a result of the culture that we live in, right? We, we are living in a, a culture that has taken not only just a postmodern intellectual turn, but an applied one as well, which says not is that we, we can't be certain of truths. And if you can't be certain of a truth, then when it comes to applying truth or making people live a certain way, you also can't do that either. And, um, and, and we should let people do what they want to do as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Now, as a non-believer, I don't feel like I have to go around enforcing my values on, on people. And I feel a whole lot nicer and better about myself because I'm a, I'm a kinder person. Now, theologically speaking, they may not be a better person morally or uh, a good person because doing what's good is not always the same as doing what's kind. But there clearly is uh, a feeling of I'm more moral now because I'm maybe more in step with what is considered to be uh, moral in the culture. Yeah, that's good. Now, a um, uh, question came in here from Jared uh, Payton. Thanks for sending that in. Jared, let me pull it up here on the screen. Uh, put that up there. What role do institutions of higher education play in individuals departing from their faith? Is it less so at faith-based higher institutions? So, I mean, um, I, I was just talking with someone for, uh, that, I mean, uh, there's a lot of examples of even uh, students at Biola, for example, uh, that finished their degree there and have deconverted from their faith. And so uh, what role does it play, Christian versus secular university? 
The Assemblies of God did a study several years ago, and they claimed that sending their kids to either a faith-based school or a non-faith-based school uh, did have a distinction in how they left. Like at the end of four years, there were more students who had drifted or had left the faith who had gone to a secular public institution than who had gone to a faith-based school. But I also think that there's something that is personally relative to this, right? So there are some people who are going to go to a public institution and for them, it's going to cause their faith to grow and to thrive because they're going to see opposition to it and they're going to have to make a decision and they might make a decision that says, yes, I'm going to become a serious follower of Jesus. And then others who go to a, a private Christian school and they may find the school that they're at to be either oppressive or they find it uh, fake and phony and they don't appreciate uh, the kind of Christianity or the, the take that is being offered there. And they think, oh, this is what Christianity is. Yeah, I don't want, I don't want to have anything to do with that. So the it's hard to answer that question specifically, except to say that public institutions um, just can really do a really serious number on on Christian folks who are not prepared and who are not grounded and connected to a good church. Um, first and foremost, and 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 a, and a campus ministry, if not a good church. So, if I send my children to a public institution, which I am certainly open to doing, I will want to make sure that I feel that we've done everything to prepare them so that they understand the challenges that will come. They've experienced them all in advance. We've exposed them to various different lifestyles and had great conversations about those things already, and um, and and so that they're aware of that. Because otherwise, the stats, as um, in, in, in both books actually show, is that colleges in the United States really do a serious number on, um, on faith retention for college-age students. Yeah, well, thank you for that. I hope that helps. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Jared, for sending that one in. Um, I guess I, the, the last thing I'd love for you to speak into before we wrap up, since we are pretty much out of time, is one of the other positive intellectual impacts, there's other things you cover in this book, and I just want to encourage people to check it out, is talking about just a lot of things and the strategies that people use and, and how deconversion really takes place. But one more thing that you point out here is this uh, positive intellectual impact of being open. And that, you know, we kind of we kind of talked about this in, in roundabout ways, I think, but just this idea that openness is best rather than this idea of having... You know, truth is kind of closed minded, I guess, if there's an aspect of this to what you're talking about here um, and and that to be open is is what's best. Why, what do you think kind of the, the cultural impact of this is of, of openness being a, a, a positive intellectual thing? Yeah, there's a difference between being intellectually humble and being um, open to experience, which is one of the big five psychological categories that uh, psychologists look at and say, there are five different personality kind of uh, uh, traits that everyone has, and we score varying degrees on when we take these personality tests. And people who score high on open to experience are people, if you were to do some sort of mathematical prediction, would be people who would be more likely to deconvert, right? So you get 100 people and you you, you give them the test and you say, you know, it's a blind test. We don't apply names to the tests. We just say, here they all are. We'd say, well, this group of people over here who score really high and open to experience, they're the ones who, if we were to predict, would be the ones that would be open to leaving their faith and, and leave their faith. And part of the reason why I think that is, is because 
there is a real hesitancy in people who really score high in this to be able to land somewhere and stick there and stay there and, and develop a sense of conviction about certain things. Um, there's a kind of an always learning and uh, never coming to a conclusion or being open to hearing repeated uh, perspectives on something or trying different experiences. And there is definitely something to being open to listening to and hearing different perspectives, right? We wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't think that any of us would want to argue for a, a closed-minded understanding of, of truth and that once you think that you've got it, you're absolutely certain and that you can't uh, ever have a, 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 you know, have a refined in any kind of a way. But that's different from then being intellectually humble. Uh, you know, an intellectual humility uh, wants to say, I think that there is truth there. And I think that if I do my best to listen to all sides, I can kind of come to an opinion on the matter. And then once I'm persuaded, then I need to be convicted to the degree that I'm persuaded. And um, people who are that score really high and open to experience uh, don't uh, seem to lack the ability to really put those roots down there and say, I'm persuaded, so I'm going to I'm going to hold ground here and, and hold to this conviction. They're, they're just continually open to rethinking and analyzing and um, may, maybe never coming to conclusions, but always interested in the process. Yeah, that's good. So as we kind of finish up, I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts. If we kind of maybe summarize everything that we've talked about, what would be your uh, kind of big keys to say, here is how we protect ourselves, protect our church, protect our children, and really ground a lifelong faith. What would be your kind of couple takeaways from from your research? You, you know, the one is, I think the most simple and the, and the most important is that Jesus is really the most important uh, out of anything. And that I want my kids to grow up, not to be uh, card-carrying evangelicals, not to be card-carrying Protestants, uh, not even to be necessarily, and, and I'm going to qualify this in a second, card-carrying uh, sort of American Christians. I want them to be real disciples of Jesus, right? I want them to to really be passionately in love with him and to care about his word and to follow him more than I want them to necessarily hold on to maybe certain pet doctrines that are important to me or... Um, uh, or to identify with a particular kind of a label. Now, I, I want them to be very uh, solid on core elements of the faith and to, to be persuaded of those and to be able to engage in dialogue with other parts of the faith that are maybe more negotiable. So those secondary or tertiary kinds of doctrines. And uh, the way that I think that we best do that is by modeling that. And there's lots of good research out there that shows that the most influential people in the lives of young people when it comes to faith retention are their parents. And the more credibility enhancing behaviors, which is just a fancy term for saying the more you walk the walk as you talk the talk, the more likely you are to pass on a lifelong faith to your children. Because if you have a good relationship with your children, and they like you, which hopefully they do, then um, they will want to be like you and they will want Christianity to be true and they will find it attractive. And all of those are really important, good things in faith development. So I would really say that um, that's the most important thing in passing on a faith. And for those people who are in the midst of, of the struggle, um, that, um, you, uh, as best as you possibly can, pump the brakes 
and to go slow, to seek out good answers, to talk to really helpful people, and to be aware of maybe some of the non-rational factors that can be driving um, our faith crisis. So I look back in my own life, and uh, in hindsight, now that I'm in my late 40s, I say, oh, at the time, I really thought this was an intellectual issue, but now I realize it was really coming out of somewhere else. And 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 it, it didn't need an intellectual answer at all. It, it kind of just needed to be resolved through a, 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 you know, a different approach. And so um, those would be the things that come to my mind uh, yeah. just off the top of my head. Wonderful. Well, John, thank you so much. Uh, man, I, I love the fact that I've been able to have this chat with you again. It's been a while since the last time you were on the show and, and uh, mm -hmm. discuss this new book of yours that just came out. And so uh, mm -hmm. just thank you for this. The best of luck to you the, and to your hockey team, unless you play the Avalanche uh, <laughs> at some point in the future, then I hope you go That's down right. and I, I hope they That's do right. let you down one more time. Uh, <laughs> but if the, if the Avalanche are out, then, uh, then go for it. But thank you for taking this time, helping right. us understand what is going on here with deconversion so that we can better love the people in our lives that are struggling to hold on to their faith. Thank you. Great to be with you. Absolutely. So everybody, thank you so much for being here again. The book, The Anatomy of Deconversion, Keys to a Lifelong Faith in a Culture Abandoning Christianity by John Marriott. Next week on Friday, the 28th is going to be again, the end of the month live Q&A where you can send in your questions ahead of time on social media, or you can join live and call in or text in and comment. I'd love to have the conversation. We can talk about that age of the earth conversation happening right now in the live chat. If you want, join me next week, Friday, 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, we're going to have a fun time answering your questions and going over uh, just all the issues that are happening in our culture. So thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I pray that you have a wonderful, blessed rest of your week. Continue to think deeply about God and Christianity because they are definitely worth thinking about. God bless everybody. I just ask you leave. Won't hesitate to follow.